0: Welcome to episode 630 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of Grantland, and on the phone with a faulty internet connection is my co-host Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello, Sam.
1: You know what else is, I have a, uh, I have, I've had just this insane cough for like four or five days, like one of the worst of my life, and I was fine on Wednesday and Thursday because I could mute it, but on the phone, there's no mute, and so you guys are gonna be in for some stuff.
0: Phones have mute buttons, I believe. Not
1: this one. It's oh right. A... Yes,
0: yeah, so you've got your last generation yeah. communication device. Okay. No,
1: no. I'm. I'm. Not only am I not. Not only do I not have uh, wireless access, but at the moment, I'm on a landline without Ooh, a cell phone. Landline. Yeah. Okay. There's a, I think there's actually even a fire. Uh, in a. Uh, a fire in a fireplace. Down the hall. We are super old-timey today.
0: Great. All right. Well, today is the Mets Preview Podcast, continuing our series of team preview podcasts from worst projected record to best. We are, what, at least halfway through this thing, maybe more. So today is the Mets. Later in our second segment, BP Sahadev Sharma will be speaking to Mark Karig, the Mets beat writer for Newsday. But right now, we have the pleasure of speaking to the Mets annual essay author and a writer for USA Today Sports, Ted Berg. Hey, Ted. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me on. So I said that you are a writer for USA Today Sports, but you are not exclusively a sports writer. And you wrote something this week that I understand was quite popular, and I want to ask you about it. You are a sandwich connoisseur. And you ate the best sandwich that you have ever eaten in your life. Tell us about this sandwich.
2: Uh, well, I've, I've actually, I've had the sandwich before. Uh, it's a breaded steak sandwich from a place called Rico Benny's in Chicago. Uh, it's kind of, it's funny, it's kind of in a weird spot in Chicago. And, um, enough so that almost everyone I know from that city uh, that I've spoken to is entirely unaware of it, of the sandwich and its existence. Um, though the place is popular. If you go there, there's a bunch of people in there or there were both times I went there. Uh, anyway, it's, it's basically a, a uh, like a steak Parmesan hero would be the best way to, to explain it. Uh, like it's, it's very thinly sliced steak, uh, breaded and fried, of course. Uh, and you know, covered in, in, uh, marinara sauce, cheese, and this, uh, which is a, a bunch of pickled vegetables, spicy, and it's amazing.
0: Well, your sandwich review has been shared 177,000 times, (laughs) according to the page I'm looking at. So no one no longer knows about the sandwich. I think Uh, the world knows about the sandwich.
2: It's an amazing feeling because, like the the Ricco Benny's people, that like, direct messaged me and they're like, "It's we're swarmed. There's all these people coming in, and it's like one of those like like you know, it makes you mad with power for a moment. You're like, wow, like look what I have done. Look at um, the sandwiches I, I have yeah. sold.
0: It's like llamas <laughs> and the dress and your sandwich review over the last few weeks. I think
2: I uh, I I don't know. I I don't understand the internet. I really don't. <laughs>
1: so wait how did it happen do you have any idea how why it's been shared on times? I uh, know like, I, I retweeted or something
2: um it got I mean I don't know I don't know I really don't know I, I mean a bunch of people um a bunch of people retweeted it obviously and stuff like that but no one I don't know one that I, it's not like Ashton Kutcher did um, <laughs> so I don't know I, I really wish I knew uh it it clicked with people for some reason and it uh, first it went nuts on Twitter and then it went nuts on Facebook and I mean I've written I've written like hundreds of sandwich reviews before never, never so glowingly perhaps but uh, for some reason this was the one that that
0: hit you really want to get that Ashton Kutcher retweet though when you're when you're writing a sandwich review that's what you're aiming for the, I mean that's, the that's, really, endorsement.
2: that's pretty much what I sit down and and go <laughs> for every time I write anything like if I'm writing about Harry Carey shirtless I'm also, I'm also aiming for that Ashton Kutcher retweet. It's going to happen for me someday.
0: So you're in Florida. You were in Mets camp earlier today in Port St. Lucie. What did you see?
2: Uh, I saw the Mets, um, (laughs) playing in an exhibition game against the Red Sox. I actually, uh, I, it was the, the union day, the day they do their union meetings today. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I was mostly focused on, on some of that stuff and, and, uh, Tracking down some people to talk to about the the minor leaguer lawsuit that I'm sure you guys are, are aware of, mm-hmm. uh, but the Mets camp, I mean, it's a you know I, I don't I don't know how much you value any of this stuff, it, it and and I don't know how how it plays out on the field, but it's definitely a uh, a confident bunch. They everybody everybody mm-hmm. is just announcing their intentions to contend this year. So at least it's a uh, it's interesting by Mets standards for sure.
1: So your essay kind of. Um touches on this point or points to this point that is really interesting about David Wright, which is that David Wright has been probably, like, the greatest Met of all time, at least as a position player. Is that fair?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, That's if, not if ironic. you right. could make the case for Daryl Strawberry still, Mike Piazza didn't play for as long, or else you, I think you could you could make a case for him as well. But uh, Wright's definitely going to finish, uh, the uh, like, head and shoulders above the rest in terms of position players on the Mets.
1: All right, so he's been this amazing, amazing player. He's been, you know, the, the hero that New York needed but didn't really deserve. Uh, he wasn't always treated all that well. He put up with a lot of uh, unhappiness, uh, a lot of losing, uh, really weird, bizarro sniping from his owner and from other people who didn't appreciate him. And then just, just as the Mets start getting where, like, they might be pretty good in the next few years, he's all of a sudden coming off of his worst year and is in a way um, like a fulcrum for how this season is, is going to go. And if they lose, it might be like that he gets blamed for them losing because he might actually not be all that great anymore. Um, and that would certainly be a huge thing. And so I guess uh, there's a couple of possible questions there, but one of them is what are the odds do you think that he isn't very good this year considering last year was his worst year? There were health issues, there were performance issues, there were a little bit of everything issues, uh, and, um, and like how much of his legacy in New York is still kind of to be determined? Uh,
2: well, you know, I, I think, you know, it's easy to, to, to look at Wright and, and his career a couple different ways at this point, I think, and you can, uh, you can connect the dots one way and see the signs of the decline. You know, he's missed a, a bunch of time in the last few years. Uh, he's obviously, he's coming off one of his worst years. He, his power has never really been the same at, at City Field as it was at Shea Stadium. Um, so I think you could you could look at all that. He, you know, obviously, he's entering his, his younger 30s. Uh, he's in his young 30s. So I think you could point to all those things and say, okay, well, here's the, the, the start of a guy going downhill or a guy who's firmly going downhill. But if you, if you look at, at what he did in 2012 and 2013, those are – I mean, 2013 was hurt for a bunch. Those are two of the best seasons of his career. And you know it—it it, you kind of the—it's like a roller coaster. If you—if you look at his his year by year line a little bit, um, although the the baseline is still pretty high. Uh, so I think that I, I don't know. I could reasonably believe, yeah, that that last year is the real David Wright, and that he's not the player he was anymore. Um, and I could just as easily see him bouncing back and being the player he was just a couple of years ago if he stays healthy. The thing with him. And I think a big part of the, the down year last year is that – and something I, I definitely touched on in the essay is that he plays through pain and that he, he almost refuses to leave games when he's hurt and, and uh, he sort of famously avoids MRI machines uh, when he knows he's hurt. Um, so last year he, he was obviously dealing with this shoulder issue that he must have known was worse than everybody else there uh, were that he let on. And a, a couple years back, he had a, a broken vertebrae in his back that he played through for a month. Um, so I think that the numbers can kind of get skewed by that a little bit.
1: And what is the status of his shoulder? Is it the kind of shoulder injury that is expected to linger at all?
2: Uh, well, there were co- concerns about it coming into the season. Uh, he says he's fine. He says he feels no pain. He's having regular spring training. But with Wright, he always says he's fine. He's never going to let on. So it's you know maybe it does hurt. Maybe it does linger. Um, right now he says he doesn't and it doesn't and, and it doesn't look like it does but I, I I'm obviously no scout.
1: So Pakoda's line for him is 270 340 430 which is a is 770 OPS and about three wins above replacement which would make him a good ball player, uh, one of the better ones on the team just maybe a round all star or a little bit below but not getting any MVP votes does that seem pessimistic to you, realistic, or optimistic?
2: Um, I think it seems it seems realistic. I, I could see him hitting for a little bit more power than that and, and getting on base a little bit more, the offensive numbers being a little bit better. I don't think he's going to put up an MVP cam- uh, campaign at, at this point. Uh, but, no, I think, uh, you know, yeah, I'd, I'd say he'll be a solidly above-average hitter and a solid third baseman. His defensive metrics have always been kind of weird. They've gone... Uh, also on on sort of wild rides for a while. Everything said he was, you know, it's the worst defensive third baseman in the game. And then he had a couple seasons where he looked like one of the best. Um, I think positioning has had a lot to do with that. So, yeah, I'll take take the over. Uh, I mean, maybe I'm optimistic, but I'd take the over for it.
0: How do you feel about him as a sandwich lover? What if, you, uh, well, what if you were eating the world's best sandwich in the pub um, house? Well, David
2: Wright actually is a sandwich. Well, he's—I don't know if I want to call him a sandwich lover. Uh, uh-huh. That's that's up to him. <laughs> uh, but Wright eats uh, peanut butter, peanut butter, honey, and oatmeal sandwiches every day. Um, sometimes only the oatmeal <laughs> is the, only
0: sometimes there in the appropriate time and place.
2: Um, but yeah, there's a there was even I I talked to him about it once, and there was a New York Times feature about it that David Wright like makes his own sandwiches and packs his lunch to work every
0: day. So when we talk about the Mets, we have to talk about the Mets' payroll and their spending and what it reveals about ownership, and the Mets actually started out with a, a pretty aggressive move this offseason, the, the Michael Kadair contract, which surprised a lot of people, and then after that, well, there there wasn't a whole lot that followed that spending-wise, so... You're, we're, you're underselling the John Mayberry deal. <laughs> yes, you're you may be right about that, so... So where does their payroll stand?
2: did
1: you just say you may bear right, may bear (laughs) right, may be right? You said his name in the sentence without – never mind.
0: (laughs) You're hearing things because of the the bad connection. Uh, So where does their payroll stand relative to where Sandy Alderson has promised it would stand at various points in the past that people can dig up and use against him?
2: I mean, well, you will always find evidence. And uh, one of James Kay at, at Amazing Avenue found like the last five years of the Mets uh, preaching that they have payroll flexibility. They always just say payroll flexibility. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be around $96 million this year unless they trade uh, Dylan G or Don, uh, John Neese in, in spring training, which I think could still happen. Um, I, I would be surprised if it happens, but, uh, you know, it. it they're obviously they've gotten extra pitcher, so I wouldn't I wouldn't be shocked. It'll probably be around 96 million. Uh, it's in 2009, I think they spent 150 million or 149. Uh, those deals though, you know, uh, I think that you can you can obviously say that the Mets rebuild would have been faster if they were spending more money. Um, and I thought to me the Kadir thing, seemed like it would almost certainly uh, bring more deals. It seemed like after the Mets were so cautious about protecting their picks the last few years, for them to just go out in on November 10th or whatever it was and, and sign Michael Goddard and give up that first-round pick, even if the first-round pick amounts to nothing, seemed like such a, a, a derailment from what had been their philosophy in the past few years that, it, that I thought for sure they were going to go out and sign a couple more type-A free agents. Um, then they didn't. And so I, I can't tell, I mean, they will have you believe, and they'll always say it's that they didn't find the right fits and they haven't found the right fits. Um, I think you can make a reasonable case for that over the past few years that since they were not the one free agent away from winning last year or the year before that, that it's hard to kill them for not signing that free agent and not committing that money and getting themselves back in the situation they were in with, with Johan Santana and Jason Bay and, and, to a lesser extent, Carlos Beltran later in their contracts, um, which were sort of the things that that crippled the last regime. Um, so I, I guess I, I buy that they didn't need those free agents, that they didn't need to be spending that money. But right around now, uh, a bunch of guys are going to start coming up for arbitration, uh, all of the younger players that, that are now part of their their regular core. Um, and, at, and at that point, and, and if they don't start you know, handing out some extensions, then I think it's, it's more or further legitimate to, to uh, wonder what's going on there.
1: So if you could wind back the clock to, to November 1st um, and run the Mets off season however you would want to, what would you have done this offseason? Like uh, in broad strokes or in specific strokes, what do you think it would have looked like in a perfect world from you know, the educated fans' perspective, I guess?
2: Um, you know, I it's it's so hard to say uh, exactly what they could have pulled off with the trade chips they have. Um, so it's hard to kill Alderson for not trading a starting pitcher at this point. Uh, if only because we don't know what was on the table for uh, Dylan G or uh, or John Nieser or Bartolo Colon, who seem all seem like the guys they would be dealing. But uh, I think you know, uh, to me, if you're spending any resources. Uh, they probably should have got another option for shortstop. Um, I understand wanting to take a chance on Wilmer Flores' bat, but I also believe, um, you know, I I don't know, it's hard to ignore the six straight years or whatever it was of scouting reports that said this guy will never play shortstop in the major leagues. And and I'm not willing to say that, you know, two or three months' worth of defensive metrics are enough to convince me otherwise. Um, So, (coughs) excuse me. I, I would have looked for a better option for shortstop. Um, even even some of the you know the lesser free agents that were out there, like the Jed Lowry type guys, just to have some insurance might have been nice. And I don't know, you know, Kadier's okay. You know, he'll, he'll hit. I'm sure uh, if he can stay healthy. I don't know if that's the and, and this is this seems like the the Mets fan sentiment. Uh, from what I can read is that it's not clear that that's the guy that you're giving up the, the first-round draft pick for after all this time.
0: The Mets have had some surprises from the system, whether it's DeGrom, no one expected him to be a rookie of the year guy or or even a prospect, really. Uh, Juan Ligaris, no one really foresaw him being maybe the, the best defensive center fielder in baseball. But Wilmer Flores, you're saying not a surprise so far, or based on, on what you saw of him last year?
2: Um, <clears throat> sorry, I have, I have Sam's cloth as well. <laughs> um, well, Flores didn't do a ton last year. He sort of got hot towards the end of the season when he got a little more regular playing time. Uh, he's a guy they've always said will hit. He's sort of the last of the Omar Minaya guys who were really, really uh, aggressively moved through the farm system. So Flores was playing full-season ball, I think, when he was 17. And... If you look, it's it. It was almost like he he was one level. He was always one level ahead of where he should have been. Um, so it seems like every year he would hit a level struggle. Then the next year come back to that level and and hit well, and then you know get promoted, and the the cycle would repeat itself. I think he'll probably hit, and I, and I think that's the gamble the Mets are taking, just because he hit at every level. Uh, right. You know he's a. Interesting sort of hitter. I guess he just must have just real quick hands and and good plate coverage. He he, when he's going well, he doesn't walk or strike out. Um, so it, it's like and when it's happening in the minors, it seems like uh guys just can't get a ball past him. Um, so I think you know I I wouldn't be I I, I would certainly bet on him hitting eventually, but I mean literally since he was 17 years old, people have been saying not a shortstop, not really a shortstop, not really going to be a shortstop. And while I don't Put you know 100% faith in my eyes or anybody else's. I think you know the the burden of proof kind of has to be on him at this point that that he can play shortstop in the majors.
0: How does it happen that prospects get underrated in, these days? I mean, I I get questions about 16 year olds, 17 year olds who maybe haven't made their stateside debuts yet, and I'm not even a prospect writer. It's kind of amazing that that anyone especially a you know a big market team with lots of attention and interest people always used to say that Yankees prospects are overhyped that anytime they get anything close to a prospect he's built up into you know top top 10 proportions whereas the Mets have had a couple of these guys who are really good players who no one saw coming at all how did that happen
2: um well it's it's a good question as well i mean uh, I think uh, the Mets have had a bunch of top prospects who haven't panned out as well. That, you know, also a, true. Like every team, you know, yeah. like every team. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I mean, DeGrom was a guy who was a, a weird, uh, sort of a weird story. He was a, a college shortstop. They He started converting, I think, his senior year, his junior year of, of college to pitching out of the bullpen. Mets made him a pitcher. He immediately got hurt. Um, and then he sort of got better as he, as he got older, I think maybe as he just got better at pitching, it's, it's one of those things. I, I think Corey Kluber is sort of similar where you can look in retrospect and, and sort of see the, the signs that, that suggested he might be good, but I don't think anyone expected that out of DeGrom, what he provided last year. And even Harvey to some extent, uh, despite being a first round draft pick. Was a guy who was sort of a, a middle of the top one hundred type prospect when he was coming up, and uh, up until the week before he came up, we were hearing reports about scouts saying, "Well, he's he's way behind. He's way behind Zach Wheeler. He's just another Mike Pelfrey. He's a guy with a, a good hard fastball and, and no breaking stuff." Uh, and then he showed up, and and it's like, how could anyone have watched this guy pitch and not realize that he's incredible? Because you watch the way his pitches move, and, and it's it's like Nintendo or whatever. Um, so I don't know. I don't, I don't really understand how we come to those consen- consensuses. consensi. I, how do you pluralize consensus? Do you guys know?
0: One uh, of those is ways. Is it just?
2: Um, yeah. So I don't. I don't know how. I don't know how people reach that stuff. But yeah, Lagares. Another great example. Like uh, Lagares had had one big year in the minors where he hit pretty well. I had I had never heard anything. And and I'm. This is when I'm following the team. Every day, this is when it's you know I'm I'm working for SNY, the teams network, and and writing about the Mets every day, and and you never heard about the guy other than this sort of eyebrow raises like ah well he's hitting 360 in Double A this year. The only person, and, and I'll give him credit, the only person I ever heard praise Ligaris for his defense before Ligaris got to the majors was Wally Backman, because uh-huh. I you know I I and this was when Ligaris was in Double A, and I remember saying something to Wally about. Well, you know, uh, is is he maybe a, a a guy who could play a corner in the future? And, and Wally was whoa, like shocked, just like no, he he could play anywhere he wants. He could play center field. He's this guy's incredible. Hmm. Um, so I will credit Wally Backman for for noticing that that. Though I guess if you were managing him, uh, you know, seeing if see what the guy can do, hmm. uh, it it might have been a little more obvious. But again, it, with him too, you know, he's a he was a shortstop when they first signed him, and I think he played a couple seasons at shortstop in the minors before they moved him to center. So maybe there was a, a learning curve there. Maybe they're doing a good job developing guys.
0: Okay, so the starting rotation is obviously the crown jewel of this roster. We've seen Matt Harvey pitch. We've seen Bartolo Colon take batting practice. All of the things that we've been looking forward to all winter. The rotation, top to bottom, looks pretty strong. Even in AAA, there are guys like Steven Matz and Rafael Montero and Noah Sindergaard who are, are close and could be up at some point this season. It seems like a wealth of starting pitching. Of course, the Mets have had wealths of young starting pitching before that didn't pan out the way that they were expecting them to. But is there a team whose pitching talent you would take over the Mets right now? Is it that good?
2: Uh, well, you know, I think you still I'd still take the Nationals, right? Mm-hmm. Just because they have all the guys who are uh, doing it and have done it. You know, whereas, whereas the Mets have a, guy, a bunch of guys who— who look like they're up to the task, and and Harvey, who was awesome for a year and then got hurt, and Degrom, who was awesome for for most of a year, but it's it's one year, uh, and and Wheeler, who who looks like he could be real good, but has been um, you know kind of a, a league average type starter uh, since he's come up. So maybe upside, I take the Mets over anyone, but uh, I think that there are uh, again, you know, it's it's you gotta. I've been burned too many times by the Paul Wilsons and Bill pulsevers of the world right. to, to believe that a well-touted crop of young pitchers are going to be a bunch of Major League All-Stars.
1: Mm-hmm. My Webster's New World Dictionary, second college edition, does not actually list a uh, plural for consensus. Just, <laughs> you guys know. Is, it, um, is that a
2: word that's not... Is it like media where it's just that's the word?
1: Right, well, it, it is conceivable that consensus as a noun, like we reached a consensus... That, that might be a bastardization. That might be modern usage only. And consensus might only refer to the general state of agreement, which can't really be brutalized. Um yeah. But I don't well, know. We're learning that, that so my, much.
0: Dictionary.com well, says consensus
1: My dictionary doesn't say <laughs> that. I'm just speculating. Yeah. Uh, so Harvey threw, let's see, Harvey threw 170 innings, I think, in 2012 and 180 in 2013. He didn't pitch at all last year, obviously. He's you know he's out of the in- injury nexus, but uh, he's still youngish um, innings wise, and of course he's coming out of the injury. Uh, so if if it's like uh, you know October first, and the Mets are in the playoffs and they're looking at needing say forty more innings out of him uh, to to win a World Series, is this going to be an issue? Is are there steps that are going to be taken if it looks like uh, they're going to be playing into October, or are innings limits just a complete non factor for him right now? He's strong uh- as ever.
2: They they definitely have innings limits limits for him. They're not giving like a set number. I think that they they watched the reaction to the Nationals a few years ago with Strasburg and and learned from that. Uh, and and from that same or or I guess by that same token, they've said uh, that Harvey will be pitching in September and if necessary in October. So they're going to do what they need to do uh, in the middle of the season to to limit his innings. And and whether that means resting him around the all-star break or or a DL stint if he, if uh you know any little thing goes awry anything to to keep him down I think in like the the 180 to 195 innings range is is probably what they're targeting Harvey and Terry Collins is joking about it at this point because he 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 used a he used a bad word for Harvey in his press conference the other day uh just anticipating Harvey. Uh, not accepting that um, Harvey seemed like he wanted to pitch the day after his Tommy John surgery uh, and probably would have if they asked. So he is obviously going to buck at some of the inning stuff. He he tends to get interviewed a lot and, and, and talk a bit. So I'm sure it'll become a headline at some point that, uh, that Harvey's not happy with the, the program or whatever. Um, it sounds like both he and the Mets kind of anticipate that happening. But before it does, or, or after it does, I guess, they, they do hope to have him pitching through the end of the season. Um, so I don't think there will be a, a shutdown proper.
1: All right, so let's say it's mid-May, no hitter going, 17 strikeouts, and 134 <laughs> pitches. What are you yelling at your TV?
2: Uh, I, I think that, I mean... I, I think you leave him in. I am sorry. I think you I know it's crazy. I know it's crazy. And and especially now that the Mets have had no hitter, it's, it, it it lost that that mystique. I think that I think about the actual and I thought about it with Santana too. If you actually I mean, Santana's had meltdowns on the mound when being removed from the game before. One time he started yelling, "I'm a man at, at Jerry Manuel a bunch."
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, so I think when you think about it from the, the human standpoint, like of Terry Collins going out there in the middle of a no-hitter and being like, sorry, Johan Santana, you're at 122 pitches and I can't let you go more than that. Um, when, you know, we know pitch counts are, are uh, at least the extraordinarily specific pitch counts like it used to be where 100 pitches and you walk out of the game are, are kind of a silly thing that that it can be so – so set like that and so prescribed for for every single guy so i i think that the rational side of everybody would say you take out matt harvey in that spot but i think that when you're when you're in terry collins's shoes there you you just can't i just i think you can't i think he, it's he'll kill you matt harvey might fight you on the mound if you try to take him out of his no hitter
0: The last thing for me, there's been a negative storyline surrounding the Mets this offseason. Their former executive in charge of ticket sales is suing Jeff Wilpon for sexual discrimination. There's actually a hearing about that case today, Monday. But the team's actual ticket sales, their current ticket sales, seems like the opposite of a negative story. At least there was a claim in January... That Mets ticket sales were up 19% over the previous year would be, which would be huge. I, don't, I mean, you wouldn't think that there'd be a huge Michael Cuddyer related ticket sales spike. So, wh- how what would explain a 19% rise in, in ticket sales for the Mets? Do you buy that, or how could you? How could you? Matt Harvey. It? I think it's yeah. Matt
2: Harvey. I think everybody <laughs> wants. To. I'm serious. I, I think. Uh, I think people are psyched. I think Mets fans are are. As excited as they have been since like the two thousand eight collapse, uh, maybe before two thousand nine, they were still pretty psyched because they hadn't been broken down yet. Um, can you buy tickets for a,
0: a starting pitcher not knowing when he'll be? No, starting? no. I, I'm
2: just, I, you know, I don't know. It's it's the Harvey as the emblem of the yeah. entire, you know, Mets team that is is out there talking about how they're going to the World Series this year, mm-hmm. and I think I think people buy it. So that'll explain the ticket sales thing. the The lawsuit, I, I obviously heard about when it first came came up. I didn't know the trial was was coming up soon. It's been quiet uh, about that in camp, but that's not the type of thing. That's uh, spring training is like a, a weird little bubble, really? you know. So, so the stories about ownership don't tend to permeate in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, that's a suit that I think is potentially devastating for Jeff Wilpon if it turns out that that's, uh, you know, that the the allegations are true. Uh, just because it's it's you know it's going to be one of Rob Manfred's first big challenges if it's if it if it turns out to be true if there's a uh, incriminating email or anything that, that comes out uh, and you look at the, the way the NFL handled the Ray Rice thing and, and obviously it's a different situation but uh, you look at the response the popular response and and the outcry after some of the ways uh, some of the things the NFL did. Uh, you got to assume Rob Manfred I- is aware of that and is going to want to handle it extremely carefully and sternly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, without knowing a ton of the specifics about the case, yeah, I mean, I think that's potentially damning for, for Jeff Wilpon, but it's, it's against Jeff Wilpon, who's, uh, the COO, but, uh, I, and I know, um, it's sort of sick but I, I imagine I, I know for sure that there are Mets fans out there just rooting for him to have sexually harassed this woman um, mm-hmm. because it will, it will uh, prompt the uh, under, under the hopes that the MLB would force the Wilpons to sell then but I don't think you could be, there's a world in which they can force Fred Wilpon to, to sell a team because of something his, his son did mm-hmm. um, so I think that's probably false hope by those Mets fans
0: all right, so we always wrap up with a prediction. So tell us how many games you expect the Mets to win, and where that will put them playoff-wise.
2: I don't think. I mean, I don't think. I don't think they'll get there. I think they'll come close. Uh, I would be. I would say. I know that Pacheco is 82. I'll take 84. I would go with 84, and that's like two games short of the second wild card or
0: something. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So thanks for joining us, Ted.
2: Thanks for having me, Ben.
0: All right. So everyone can go find Ted on Twitter at OGTedBerg. You can read his Walking Dead recaps and his sandwich reviews and his baseball coverage at For the Win, the USA Today sports site. And coming up after the musical break, Shahadev will speak to Mark Carrig, the Mets beat writer for Newsday.
3: Welcome to the second half of the Effectively Wild podcast. I'm Sahadev Sharma, associate editor for Baseball Prospectus. With me is Mark Karig, Mets beat writer for New York Newsday. Mark, thanks so much for joining me.
4: You got it, man. Thanks, thanks for me. having me.
3: No problem, no problem. The Mets, uh, you know, they're a team that I think uh, some people believe can compete. Uh, they have a strong rotation, and and they have some nice pieces on offense. That, uh, you know, nice. Maybe I'm being generous by saying that, but <laughs> but let's let's start off with with the offense and adding only Kadair in the offseason. I think a lot of people were upset. They they felt this team was few pieces away and they added just one one guy and maybe some would say overspent on him. What What's the philosophy on only adding Kadir and did they pay too much for him?
4: Yeah, I think those are fair criticisms. Um, I will say just like everything else with the team even this year where they're very interesting and there's a lot of positive things going on the elephant in the room is going to be payroll and, and where they stand financially as an ownership group and right now other payrolls at about a hundred million bucks that puts them in the lower third of baseball um, playing in the largest media market in baseball. So as you can see, um, you know, that's not a, not a formula that adds up uh, to many, many people. And I don't blame them. I, I just, I feel like uh, that's a constant factor. And so that relates to this question. Why only one deciding? Well, um, frankly, I think uh, they had a budget to work with them, and that's what they could afford. And, uh, then the question becomes, well, why would you spend that kind of money on this particular guy, Michael Kedire, where um, there's obvious flaws there and and, and all that. And <clears throat> I think um, the short answer to that is, this is someone that they targeted in particular because they thought uh, they could get him at a certain price and uh, they liked a lot of the things that he did. You know, they recognize teams, a flawed player, but, Uh, I think it was something they wanted to pursue because they liked him in particular. um, And so they did. (laughs) So much has been made about giving up the draft pick to sign him. Again, all of these are fair criticisms, but uh, the one thing I will say for it is just talking to people within the organization, uh, whether you agree with the philosophy or not, this is a guy they targeted. It's a guy they wanted and they got him. So, uh, I think that's a big deal if you're a team. Like again, you can quibble with whether this is like a wise decision or not, but it is the guy they wanted. Um, they made the move to get him. And why didn't they do more? Well, again, that always has to do with the biggest factor in the room here, which I mean, in my opinion still exists obviously, since uh, you know their payroll estate are about the same now for the last four years. And that is you know, what is true of the financial health of the franchise. And, you know, again, you're constantly looking at their move through that lens. And actually, I think this is a really great example of that.
3: Is there any clarity to their to their financial situation is, is there any reason why that may change in the near future, or is this just uh, the reality that Mets fans have to deal with?
4: Yeah, well, that's a giant you know question. There is like, <laughs> how long will this last? And, and as you know, when you look at you know these are private companies. Like, it's not like their books are public record or any of that stuff. So the best you can do is try to get partial pictures of it through certain things that require public disclosures. For instance. And I think in the Mets situation, and one of our writers in Newsday has like covered this a lot. Um, you know, because of the way the stadium was funded, this, the team has to divulge like, some of its limit ticket sales. I think with suites, like upper level things, and from what you know, they disclose there, you can kind of get a sense of where they're at. And so, um, you know, they've struggled to sell those pre, therefore, uh, you know, once you put the pieces together, it doesn't really give you like a an encouraging picture of things changing. And of course, uh, you know, they're still falling for the Madoff scandal and, and so on and so forth. So when you put all the pieces together, all the pieces and the shreds that you can kind of, you know, pick up the public record and, and whatever, uh, you know, it's not an encouraging picture for them right now. Um, you know, it, it doesn't look to me anyway. Uh, and then this is like just looking at how they behave, fire signing and what followed or in this case didn't follow after that, um, you know, it sort of helped add to this picture. But, You know, they're not acting like a team that, you know, is really close to just being able to spend whatever they want to spend. So looking at it, if I were a Met fan, you know, the question is, well, how much more of this is there going to be? I mean, I would just assume that this is what they're going to spend in the immediate future for a while. And, you know, unless, like, they do something drastic or different that tells you otherwise, there's no reason to change that assumption, So, and I think it colors a lot of the decisions that they make, everything from whether to pursue free agents, uh, certain free agents, or whether to hold on to prospects, um, you know, in trades. I think this colors everything and and still colors everything. You know, obviously the team... uh, it's not a subject they want to like broach. They, they really don't want to talk about it publicly. They don't want it all to go away. But let's just look at it from a baseball perspective and then look at the moves. I think there's clearly another factor going on on here as far as uh, um, you know finances, and I think it does shape and color the way they go about their business, at least from like the team building standpoint.
3: As far as the shortstop <laughs> situation goes, you know uh, Wilmer Flores is. Uh, seemed like the guy that was gonna get the shortstop job it sounded like uh you know that i think a lot of people have questions about his defense but people like his bat it hasn't proven it yet in the big leagues but there's upside there then of course there's uh tejada and then oh. and then uh, other other options is someone emerging in camp right now or is uh, are we looking at those two guys and and which one of them emerges as the guy uh
4: come opening day No, really it's one guy it's Limer Flores. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I mean, and Terry Collins actually made reference to this a couple of weeks ago. I mean, he made a big old to-do about, well, this is a competition and on and on and on between the two guys, as you mentioned, being Flores and Ruben Tejada. But, you know, Ruben's had a shot at this. And while he's a young player and while there are some tools there that people can like and maybe gravitate toward, um, you know, I, I, think, I think that ship has sailed. I think the Mets... Are committed to giving Wilmer Flores a chance at taking this thing and trying to run with it, knowing you know what his limitations are, and I think they're clear here. Defensively, he doesn't have the range to be a good major league shortstop. I think you know if this is going to work out, it's going to be because he hits well enough to support uh, his lack of range. Now, what does he have going for him? Like I think when you talk to people that have watched him uh, a lot, you know, scouting types. Uh, you know, they they think the battle play eventually. Like there's a strong belief there that it will and, and as you mentioned, he hasn't showed it at the major league level. But I think to a lot of people, you know, the decision makers, he's shown enough where, you know, this is something that they can explore as a potential solution. Like I, I don't think, you know, if you look back at the Mets this year and they don't achieve what they think they're going to achieve, I don't know if we'll or Flores playing sh- shortstops in the top five of their problems. Honestly, uh, you know if the bat plays up and all that. So, um, you know there's no competition there. And you know and this is sort of a big question with them now. So let's say this, this experiment doesn't work. If Wilmer doesn't hit enough to support the glove, that trade off is now one sided. He's giving you brutal defense, and on top of that, he's not hitting. Uh, that's where they're in trouble because Ruben Tejada. You've seen that movie before um you know, it's a limited player uh, in that position Dif- limited in different ways but limited all the same and then behind that you've got a guy Matt Reynolds who uh you know has actually gotten some rave here early in camp uh he, he swung the bat pretty well but you know he's, he's not a natural shortstop you know and, and whenever you hear guys and this is a classic description of Matt Reynolds you, you hear like you know, traditional types talking about, well, oh, he's, you know, he's much more than like just his parts, you know, like he's a baseball player. Like, you know, to me, when I hear that stuff, that's code word for he doesn't do a lot of things really well. And that somehow he's had some success. And like, I don't know if that's a very good explanation or I don't necessarily think that's actually flattering either when, you know, that's the skill set you're describing of somebody. Well, that's you know their backup option at this point. I feel like if Flores weren't to work out or, work, or if Flores did not work out, then you know they have to go look for in-house alternatives. I think Matt Reynolds is the guy, but you know I, just what I hear about him, like I, I'm not sure that he's like an actual true shortstop either. So uh, that could turn into uh, a giant pain for them uh, if Flores doesn't live up to you know it doesn't make that equation work basically, which is you got to hit to support the glove. So. Uh, certainly something to keep an eye on. I, I think, you know, I think Wilmer will hit. You know, I, just personal opinion. I think, uh, I don't think it's crazy to think that battle play, um, and that ultimately that works out. Um, I think a lot's been made of it because it's a it's a clear uh, question mark. But you know, if, if it were me, I'd be more concerned about other things like David White's shoulder or. Uh, whether Curtis Granderson, uh, you know, can can pick it up after you know struggling mm-hmm. uh, on the whole for last year, I, I just you know if Michael Dyer stays healthy, like I feel like there's just a lot more things that are, are clearer question marks to me. The stuff thing is easy because I think not because it's the biggest problem they can face. I just think it's the most clear example of them not playing with a full financial deck, so to speak. So you know because if they were then I think, you know, they would look more aggressive in trying to address that need. Whereas this offseason, you know, yeah, they talked about wanting to get a new guy there, but none of the trade discussions they had went anywhere and they weren't involved with any free agents. So that, you know, those factors together uh, point towards, again, that financial issue that permeates everything here.
3: Yeah uh well let's talk about something where you know money isn't involved at least not yet and uh and you know it seems like there may be there there were obvious questions heading into spring but it sounds like matt harvey is back to that stud that we saw back in 2013 is that i mean you've obviously seen just very little of him but how does he look is he healthy and is he ready to be that stud
4: once again yeah he looks good i think You know, obviously, you can't really tell. (laughs) These are limited looks you're getting in spring training and all that stuff. But those caveats aside, I mean, he looks physically like he's ready to go. Um, Velocity-wise, he was up to 99. And he did that more than once. And this is from his uh, first Grapefruit League start a couple days ago. So uh, in in that department, I feel like he's really not much different from the guy that you know, we saw before he got hurt. Now, that said, he still hasn't thrown a slider uh, very much, and I think that's going to be a key for him. It's it's his best secondary pitch. It's a dominant pitch when he before he got hurt. That slider is going 90 miles an hour, and it was just mowing people down. So obviously, it also means or throwing that pitch also requires you to put more torque on your elbow and so he hasn't really done that yet so I'm curious to see how that progression goes Uh, reintegrating that pitch into his arsenal uh, I wonder how fast it'll be until he trusts it fully can command it fully and so far we really haven't seen that he's thrown more curveballs and those look pretty good so that's a decent sign but uh, that slider is a money pitch for him so uh, certainly the signs are good early on but this is nowhere close to a full picture yet i mean if anything you can glean that physically uh with rehab and all that stuff he's he's just as strong as he was before uh physically he's fine but obviously there's more to pitching than just being physically ready to do it there's the command aspect and uh the endurance aspect and then just also really confidence with the pitches and uh I think the slider is the big one to keep an eye on moving forward just because that's really the only thing he hasn't showed yet to this point. So certainly something to keep an eye on, but the early signs are good.
3: You know, I think some people may not have realized how good uh, DeGrom was last year. There, there, maybe people outside of New York just thought this – you know this guy wasn't a hype prospect by any means so a lot of times people just assume this is a one-year wonder but but this guy had legit stuff this was i mean this wasn't just you know a guy that had one of those uh, eras that tricked people into thinking that he was actually good this guy has top of the rotation stuff and and should should be a centerpiece of the rotation along with harvey and wheeler for years to come right
4: yeah and you know what though but i don't blame the people that overlooked him because i did too to be honest when he came up uh he had a nice run when he got called up he's going to be a reliever uh dylan g got hurt got put him in the starting rotation had a great start against the yankees and that sort of started this roll of very nice starts but even in those and, and you would look at the starts and look at the numbers you'd see he caught a little bit of luck i mean that was at least the picture being painted and watching the starts you could see why that was that was the case so it kind of caught me off guard. I think I, I underestimated the stuff that he had, but as you watched him adjust, I think that's where it got really impressive when you know, he'd he made a few starts now and, and people were adjusting to him. The sky reports are out and, and, and every young pitcher goes through this. Like they start to get figured out. He adjusted so quickly and got himself back on track so quickly that uh, that was impressive. And, and that pointed now to, okay, this guy, like you say, he's got some good stuff. Obviously, he's got good stuff because uh, major league hitters have adjusted to him, and he's able to hit the switch and make adjustments back. And to me, that hints at you know being able to uh, with some stuff. You know, like he's, he's got a fastball that's deceptive. Uh, the breaking stuff is advanced for you know where he's at. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't blame people for feeling like he snuck up on him. I, mean, I covered the team every day. He snuck up on me, too. But, uh, you know, that's also why when you look back at it, what a cool surprise that was. I mean, it was a fascinating story to cover because I think he snuck up on most people and even folks that see the team a lot. Uh,
3: with Juan Lagares in center field, I mean, we know. He's one of the best center fielders as far as defensively. We, we know he's one of the best in the game. Is there any more that he can tap out uh, offensively? Or I mean, he was average last year, and I, I guess you'll take that. But is there more upside here?
4: I think the Mets think so. You know, I think the Mets think that with a little bit more plate discipline, that he can close the gap there as far as uh, increasing that on base percentage. And you know, the thing that they really love about this guy is that he's got a super solid work ethic. And now everybody that plays in the major leagues has some semblance of that. But uh, to hear the coaches talk about this dude, like they really rave about the fact that he wants it badly. He wants to be better at these deficiencies. And one of them has played discipline. Uh, He'll be the first to tell you that. But uh, he's put in the work. And I think they're confident that he can get better at that. Now I'm not saying that he'll, you know, he's going to be like a prototypical leadoff guy. You know, where you know, he's not super high on base and all that stuff. I, I don't know if he's got that in him, but I think certainly he can do better. And you know, I, I want to say 330 or whatnot. I, I think that's where he was. I mean, he was lower than that the year before. But um, anyway, I think they can. They think that he's got it in him to improve his plate discipline and up his on base percentage. And that's just to me. That's just cake because, like you say, when you look at defense on the defensive side. I mean, he's ridiculous. I. I mean, I. Honestly, don't know if I've seen a better defensive player at any point. I mean, I started covering the game in 2008. I've been a fan of my entire life. I don't know. Honestly, this is a fun thing to think about. Like, who is better than him defensively? That I saw a lot. I don't know if anybody knocks him off that pedestal. He the guy is ridiculous. So, um, you know. Anyway, given what he does defensively, um, you know, whatever they can, you know, squeeze out of him offensively, you know, whatever more, I mean, that they can squeeze out of him offensively is kind of bonus. And I think they certainly think they can get, um, you know, a little bit more out of him as far as plate discipline, which obviously would be a big deal for him as far as anyone base more. And I think that would be the area um, of most improvement or most obvious area where he could improve, I should say.
3: Uh, as far as the corners in the outfield, it, I mean it, – it... Is is Lagarus just expected to to cover the whole outfield right there? I mean, it's going to be kind of rough. Uh, with I mean, Granderson's really taken a step back, and we know that Kadire is not not much defensively. And and I and I thought I read that they're actually putting Granderson in left and Kadire in right. Is I mean, what's the reasoning behind doing no, that? That's first of all,
4: right now. This is just talking to people in the organization. There's still a big debate about who plays where. I mean, obviously, Billigares is in center, but uh, I think it's an interesting question, actually. When you look at Granderson's defensive shortcomings, uh, at least metrics-wise, it's really his arm that's the issue. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at... I think he's... At, in UZR, he's slightly below average in range. And I think when I was looking at defensive run save, like, uh, he's actually, you know... Like neutral, like he's not killing, he's not helping, he's not hurting him. Um, but in both um, metrics, God, it, his overall ratings are just killed by his weak arm. So that's why there's been the thought within the Mets to move him to left field because, you know, obviously that takes away some emphasis on the arm. You can hide it a little bit better there. Um, of course, the problem then is you move Kadir to right field and that exposes him too. I mean, he just doesn't have the range uh, to play there. And, and Terry Collins talked about this a few days ago. Uh, City Field is kind of a weird place. There's a lot of real estate to cover in Wright Field, and there's a lot of really strange quirks there. There's that notch, uh, what used to be called the mozone in Wright Field. Uh, the, the fence down the foul line is really close. Uh, and so there's just a lot of, like, dangerous areas there, so to speak. Uh, To put a player who's limited range wise like Kadir. So, right now, actually, Kadir is taking most of his outfield reps in left field and Granderson is sticking in right just because of the comfort factor uh, there. Um, I think Granderson will see some time in left field, but right now I think the Mets are leaning toward playing him in right field, uh, you know, and then having Kadir try to make the adjustment left. Um, So, you know, it, it is an interesting question. I don't know. If they have a good option there, either way. But I think what's interesting to see here is what what they do with Branderson, just in terms of how do you hide that arm. Um, you know, I actually had a conversation with him about it today, and he said one of the things that was a tough adjustment for him when he moved from center field to right uh, is the depth that he played with. He liked playing more shallow in center field. Uh, and he noticed that right, he had to play back a bit more. And when I mean, you look at actually defensive run safe, uh, he was like positive, like like double digits positive on balls behind him. So, which was kind of surprised by. Uh, but then, you know, I figured maybe that had to do, to, or that might have to do with, you know, why his arm ratings were so bad. I mean, he's making longer throws by playing deeper. So, you uh, know, and I think the Mets. From what I what I understand, like they're on, they're aware of this as well, obviously, and so uh, I think that's why they basically think that his arm uh, might be helped by better positioning, a little more experience out there, um, you know, making sure to uh, help him out as far as like getting a cutoff man out there, making him more aggressive as far as charging with balls that are on the ground, so he can hold more runners or keep him from taking extra bases. Um, he worked on his. Uh, Arm strength in the off season, Uh, so I don't know. Like it seems to me that he'll probably end up in right field, and that I don't know if it would be. I mean, it's not an ideal situation, obviously, but I think the Mets think we can work around it by, you know, really, you know, he's done his part. He's he's done some work in the off season trying to strengthen his arm, but uh, also uh, the Mets are looking at other ways to sort of work around it again by trying to get him to charge at more balls aggressively so he's cutting the distance on throws and then maybe even having cut-off guys go out there and help him out in that regard too. So, we'll see. Uh, but right now, I think they're leaning towards him and right and Kondire and left. Uh, and of course... Whatever, because Lagares is He's going to catch our
3: attention. Anyway, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Mark, before I let you go, just one final question. Uh, this isn't the the key for the Mets, but more what uh, as a reporter, as someone that's writing about the team every day, what are you looking forward to covering as far as a storyline or event, whatever it may be? What's what's going to intrigue you the most for
4: 2015? Yeah, I think it's Harvey. Honestly, I think you, you know he was gone for so long. Uh, from game action. I guess it was like six, 17, 16 months, something like that. I almost forgot what it was like in the park when he was on the hill. And, right. you know, we got a taste of it a couple days ago, and it was like, holy smokes. You know, this is crazy. And like, it, it just, there's something heightened about the place when he's involved. And, and there's just, uh, you know, I don't know why that is, or I mean maybe it's just the personality and sort of how he's become larger than life in that regard and people really pay attention to this guy and he's got the kind of personality where you can't really turn away you know whether it irritates you or you think it's awesome you can't ignore him you know and then on top of that he's also really really good so to me i'm fascinated by that x factor that he brings i mean people in the clubhouse rally around him he's viewed as a leader you know like he's uh, you know, just not just by skill, but also personality. There's a brashness to him that I feel like a lot of people gravitate toward within the organization. So, you know, I think that's fascinating. It's almost like uh, you know, he's, he really is like uh, just the magnetic figure for the franchise and, you know, a franchise that really needs one right now, frankly. So um, I think that's going to be the most interesting story. It's just, all right, where, can this guy pick up where you left off? You know, how long will that take? And you know, basically, uh, if he is that guy, will it be enough to help push them over the top? I mean, they've been rebuilding mode here for a couple of years now, and when you look at the pieces they put together, uh, as you said at the beginning of this, you know, they they could be a really interesting team. And so, to me, though, whether they actually do it or not is going to hinge on whether Matt Harvey can help push them over the top. So, uh, yeah, I think that's going to be the most interesting thing: is just watching him pitch again and. You know, it, and, and sort of soaking it up because, man, he gets on the hill like he lights up the ballpark uh, it, it really is a cool thing and um, you know, I know the fans that have sat through a lot of bad baseball, they're really looking forward to it obviously because I think they're very, very aware of what his presence can mean in the bigger picture, you know, as far as pushing them over the top and, and finally making them a playoff contender
3: you know, there's there's not a right answer to that question usually, but in this case, that that is the right answer for the Mets. Matt, Matt Harvey is is the reason to watch this team. Uh, I mean, just a just a stud, just a guy. I remember I, I carved out time to to come cover a Cubs-Mets game when he was on the Hill uh, in 2013. I don't think I was even supposed to work, but I picked up that shift because I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll take I'll, I'll take a, a Matt Harvey day if you want to pay me money to watch Matt Harvey pitch. I will gladly do that. Uh, Mark, before I let you go, why don't you uh, let the folks know where they can read your work and where they can find you on Twitter? Yeah,
4: um, well, I work for New York Newsday, so we're at newsday.com. Uh, and then on Twitter, I'm at Markrig. Uh, it's M-B-R-C-C-A-R-I-G. So, um, you yeah, I'm bored, so I tweet a lot. <laughs> you can find me there. Um, so it's Mark Craig, not Mark Craig with a K. As, you know, I get nailed for that a lot. But anyway, uh, yeah, um, you know, send a question if you have one, because like I said, I'm on there a lot. So uh, just say a word.
3: All right. That's Mark Carrig, Mets beat writer for the New York Newsday. Thanks so much for joining me, Mark. Appreciate your time.
4: Great. Thanks
0: for having me, man.
4: We'll see you in Chicago.
0: All right. That's it for our Mets preview podcast. Thanks for listening. You can send us emails for this week's listener email show at podcast at baseballprospectus.com. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild rate review and subscribe to the show on iTunes and support our sponsor, the Play Index by going to baseballreference.com, subscribing to the Play Index using the coupon code BP and getting the discounted price of $30 on a one year subscription. We will be back tomorrow with the Cubs preview podcast.